Welcome back to Random Book Club Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Van. We got a new book, and we got a returning co-host, Justin Mason, indie author. How you doing, Justin? Dan, I'm doing great, brother. You know, it's awesome to be back here. And you know what's even more awesome about tonight's episode? Like you said, we've got a brand new book. Well, First it's old. Series. It's a brand new old. We're, we're reading a, a uh, new okay. book for the podcast, but it's old. Yeah. Like 2015 or something. It's called The Aeronauts Windless by Jim Butcher. From the Cinder Spires. It's the first book in the Cinder Spires series, which only has one book right now. But yep. Jim, who was popular for doing the Dresden Files, just finished uh, his two book release um, in September. So he did uh, Battlegrounds and Peace Talks and very popular and now I think he has an opportunity to put out the next Cinder Spires. But, uh, I mean, it might not be for another year or whatever. Hopefully he goes back to it. But anyway, we're going to go into it. What is uh, The Aeronauts Windless? It's The Aeronauts Windless is the first novel in the Cinder Spires series. Uh, it's a steampunk fantasy series. The, the Aeronauts Windless mixes steampunk technologies, magical wars, and intelligent cats. And that's from Wikipedia. Love it. I'm listening to the audio audible narration, but and he the guy who narrates it is Ewan Morton, and he does a wonderful job. It is so good. Uh, but I did pick it up on Kindle so I could follow along for the podcast, and there is a lot of stuff I missed. It is a wonderful reread. Absolutely. At once you know the world and stuff, rereading it just makes it so much better. So I'm gonna be dropping in little contextual things as we go. Well, let me say this. This was the first thing I saw when I opened this book. Now, the podcast won't be able to see this, but if they find the map, whether it's the Audible ver the oh, Kindle version yeah. or whether it's a print version, this is the first thing you see. It's and beautiful. I'm looking at this like, oh. Yeah, what am I looking at? Well, let's get into that just after. Let's let's review the front here, the cover. What do you think of the uh, cover? The cover, you want to know? Yeah. You want to really know what I thought when yeah. I looked at this cover? That's you in a steampunk setting. Oh, hell yeah. That, how, this guy's got way how, more hair. And that doesn't matter. That is how you would stand, and that is exactly how you would look, look off into the distance. I saw that, and I was like, dude, that's Dan. Hell yeah. I thought of you right away. Well, I, I think that's awesome, because what, what we're seeing here is, I believe, the captain of the Predator, which is the, the yeah. main ship in the book. And it basically is a what you would imagine a steampunk captain to look like. He's a kind of swashbuckling looking dude. He's got goggles on his head. Yep. He's got a cutlass hanging out, uh, let resting on his shoulder. Um, he's yep. wearing kind of a leather jacket slash kind of military garb action Amanda's going cold. on. Yep. Um, and we got a little blurb from our boy, Patrick Rothfuss from the name of the wind saying great action scenes, a fascinating world. This is everything I've come to expect from Jim butcher, but in a delightful new flavor. Which is awesome. Love Patrick Rothfuss. Nice to see Patrick putting somebody over. That's good. Yeah. The cover's pretty sweet looking. I mean, it, it also does kind of look like every other steampunk book you've ever seen in your life. As far very as true. Like there's I've I've seen that image before. You know what I mean? Like it just it's very iconic to steampunk. Um well, you know what they say, dude. Imitation is the greatest form of flattery. So let's bust into the first uh couple pages that you were pointing out. The maps. God, the dude, book's got so maps. Intense. You know we love maps. Bro, they're so intense. It almost turned me off and made me say I'm not going to like yeah, this. Yeah, it's like, what almost. is this? 
So these maps yeah. are done by an um, an artist named uh, Priscilla Spencer, and yes. she did uh, both of these along with some other like paintings or whatever drawings for uh, Jim Butcher. So let's take a look at it. What are what the heck are we looking at here? So this is uh, we're looking at the first map on the on the first page, which is called it says in the top Habble Morning. His Majesty Addison Orson Magnus Jeremiah Albion, first citizen and spire arc of Spire Albion. So what the heck? So Habel is basically like a city. This is where the this is the city that the book is going to take place in, or one of the main cities that you can actually see within Spire Albion. What the heck is a spire? Well, um, and I'm going to give you this context now because the very first uh like like title of the summary or of the uh, prologue says um, Spire Albion, Havel Morning, House Lancaster. And and if you've never read the book before, like I didn't the first time I read it, I was like, what the heck is that? What the heck is that? House Lancaster. Okay. We kind of got that. So Spire Albion refers to spires in this world. um, People live all the human race lives in these spires around the world and these spires are constructed they're they're big cylinder um imagine like um like a tall boy can you know yeah but they 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 go up for like ten thousand feet high and um each uh cylindrical layer is uh called a habble and that's where people can live so there's like 250 layers per spire and um what we're looking at on this map is one cutout piece, uh, bird's eye view of one of the most important habbles of Spire Albion. And you can imagine these spires, um, uh, they're kind of like their own nations. So Spire Albion would be like America. And then you have like other spires that would be other nations. And so um, in this particular one, we're looking at Habble Morning and you can see it's got House Lancaster at the top, at the tippy top. And the way it's, if you look at the map, Justin, I don't know if you want to take a look at this, but you see well, how there's a big, do, yeah. big circle. Imagine that circle is the outer walls, okay? And then the square in between is where people live. And then the, all that open space in between, like on the outside of the square is where all like the vents are, ventilation shafts, like things that power up the, the city and stuff like that. That's where all that goes. So does that start to make a little more sense now? Yes. Yeah. Yes. You can see these are very highly populated areas. Did you have a question? Oh, I like it. No, I like this. Yeah, it's cool. Once you start to break it down, once you start to actually dive in and digest it, as opposed to just going, oh, this ain't for me, yep. back on the shelf. But once you start to actually digest it, break it down and understand it, it's pretty damn cool. Well, this is the first time I actually looked at these because like I said, I listened to the audiobook first, so I never saw these maps before. So when I got the Kindle version, I was like, hell yeah, this is awesome. And yeah, these maps slap. The second set of maps is the upper and lower level of Habble uh, Landing, which is okay. um, just kind of the, the, the center of Habble Morning. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. Um, we'll be able to refer to these later on, uh, but you can see on the on the bottom of the top map there, it says shipyards and like that's where all the airships come in and stuff like that. So you can imagine that this, this particular Habble is located relatively high in this spire. So I, I like the maps. I think they're really cool, old school looking. I'd like to see them in color. They are kind of hard to read. 
And the first, the prologue is going to take place in House Lancaster, which is at the, the tippy top north end of that first map. Okay. I don't think there's any better place for us to jump into the prologue than right here, Dan. Agreed. So prologue, Spire, it starts with Spire Albion, Habel Morning, House Lancaster. So we know which Spire we're in, which nation we're in. We know which uh, floor or, or level or city we're on, which is Habel Morning, and we're at House Lancaster. Um, summary. Gwendolyn Margaret Elizabeth Lancaster said mother in a firm, cross voice. You will cease this nonsense at once. Now, mother, Gwendolyn replied absently. We have discussed the matter at length upon multiple occasions. She frowned down at the gauntlet upon her left hand and rotated her wrist slightly. The number three strap is too tight, Sarah. The crystal's digging into my palm. Just a moment, miss. Sarah bent nearer the gauntlet, fastening, eyeing them over the rims of her spectacles. She made a series of quick, deft adjustments and asked, Is that better? Gwendolyn tried... The motion again and smiled. Excellent. Thank you, Sarah. Of course, miss, Sarah said. She began to smile, but glanced aside, and mother schooled her expression into a soberly appropriate diffidence, which is kind of like a shyness and lactus. So everything you've just read, I know almost everything I need to know about three characters on this page already. Yep. I know I know I know that Sarah's a maid. I know that Gwendolyn is the daughter of a well-to-do family a lady and i know yep. yep and i know that mother is a little bit uppity because she of how she addresses her daughter by calling her by her full name yeah, exactly that's the thing about writing like this right is you can learn things about characters or infer things initially about characters without ever having descriptions about them just by how they speak when they're written properly and it's very it's very like proper etiquette style speech you know now mother we've spoken about this at great length and i care not to jump back into it could you tighten this gauntlet for me so oh right away miss you yep. know like all this shit i'm just like i'm like i'm like part of me wants to have them do it in like old english the other part of me wants them to read it like we speak and i just i like this it, this it works this this pulled me right in had me right away so the prologue starts with gwendolyn lancaster and her mother having an argument while one of the house lancaster maids is assisting gwen in her preparations to depart for the spire arcs guard where she plans to take an oath and serve for one year yes. her mother seems super angry at her for not talking it over with her first and says she would rather see her in the etheric engineering academy but is cut off by gwen who states I've been working on those systems in the testing shop since I could walk, I, and I'm quite sure I will go mad if I have to endure two years worth of introductory courses. So Gwen is established as a whiz of etheric energy. So we're getting we're getting like world building in and, and character building at the same time. In in one sentence. Yep. yep. Like and what you I, get what it. I, what I really like is our character Gwen here is immediately not made out to be a dipshit. Right. Right. And that's really important to me is like, sometimes you read a book, Oh, it's another loser girl with no ambition and no, no chance at success. It's another guy that just can't get it right. Here's a character that I can actually identify with somebody that's talented, super competent. I like, yeah. I know like what she this, wants. Right. Yeah. And I'm immediately like identifying, believe it or not with a female character. Yeah, and, and you're getting the idea of like, okay, she's talked to her mom about this several times. She's like, I'm just going to have to do what I need to do. Yeah, and, I'm going to do what I want. 
and that's cool seeing i mean it, it almost comes off as as a little bratty but you're getting the idea of like what we're in store for it comes off as bratty i agree but she's not willing to she's not willing to give in she's not down to somebody saying well i'd rather you go to the finishing academy uh i don't need to go learn how to be a lady and work with etheric energy i'm gonna go serve in the guard serve in the service like i'm gonna go do something i like it yeah i like it too and gwen drills the point home by citing that other daughters of high houses take the oath her mother points out that other houses are not lancaster who a apparently rules the highest habble of the council and is solely responsible for cultivating vats of crystals, which seems to be very important to Habble Morning's fleet and takes meticulously long-term planning and foresight to produce. So we're getting an idea of House Lancaster and how they are um, a pivotal or like a very high role in ranking in society, specifically on this Habble and for the whole council of the Spire, that they produce these crystals which she, uh, Gwen, obviously has a lot of experience with saying she doesn't want to go to etheric energy school. So we're kind of connecting those two crystals, etheric energy, that kind of thing. Yeah, so we're, we're getting an idea that they are pretty high-end people. Yeah, if we didn't already have that impression from the previous page. Right. Sarah, Gwendolyn said, I believe I heard Cook mention that her back was still giving her trouble. I would appreciate if you would ease her duties this morning. Would you mind terribly delivering father's breakfast to him and sparing Cook's, Cook the stairs? So um, what we're getting here is uh, Gwen is having this argument with her mother and um, and her mother snaps at her and she because the maid is there, it like makes the maid freeze. And she's like, uh, what do I do? You know what I mean? Like I'm a maid. I'm supposed to help you guys, but you guys are obviously having some real shit going on, but I can't just leave unless I'm told to. And so Gwen gives her an excuse to leave, which is really nice. And then, um, uh, the, the maid says, of course not lady Gwendolyn. Uh, Sarah said, bobbing her head quickly and courteously. She flashed Gwendolyn a swift smile containing both gratitude and apology, like for the, like, sorry that you're in this situation, and moved from the room uh, in a sedate efficiency. Gwendolyn smiled until Sarah left the room, then turned and frowned faintly at her mother. That was not very thoughtful of you. Like, hey, correcting her on her etiquette, her mother. Yeah. So th- there's a lot of manners and respectability being thrown around here. Yeah, and it's, you know, again, it just hammers home what we've been talking about since the very first page of the book, which I like because we establish these characters as initially we think they're high class based on how they're talking. Now we know they're a member of House Lancaster. They have important duties, higher class or really important, one of the two. And now just the way they're correcting etiquette, the way they're kind of getting after each other like this, it's like, okay, kind of important. Well, also seeing her mother being hard with her like this, um, because she, her mother says something like, like, if you don't leave the room in the next 10 seconds or go like tries to ground her. And if you don't leave yeah. in the next 10 seconds, I will beat you soundly. <laughs> you know, like she Gwendolyn's cut from the same cloth as mom. You know what I mean? Yeah. Doesn't she say something like you realize I'm armed, don't you? Oh, that that does come up. So like, um, yeah, like I'll slap the shit out of you. <laughs> <laughs> so mother tries to continue the argument and demands she take off the gauntlet right now and face consequences, to which Gwen hilariously says, you realize I'm armed, don't you? She then tries to explain 
uh, why she wants to leave further by saying that basically um, finds her current lot in life to be monotonous and boring. And by serving, she could find something of interest to her. She's like sick and tired of, of just being in this house and working the crystal vats and doing her thing as a, a lady Lancaster. You know, I want something more. And it and it is funny, it, you know, that that kind of like threat of like, I am armed mother, you know? Yeah, like. You're not going to tell me what to do right now. I so, will defend myself. So then Mother reveals her trap card by ordering the guards who had <laughs> snuck up behind Gwen during her explanation to seize her. And this is from the book. She took a quick step to one side and felt strong hands seize her left arm. Had she not moved, the second man would have had her right arm in the same moment, and her options would have been far more limited. Instead, she seized the wrist of her assailant pivoted her weight into him, robbing him of his balance, breaking the power of his grip at the same time, and continued her smooth circular motion into a throw, dumping him over uh, one hip and onto the floor at the feet of the second armsman. So now Gwen is established as a pretty good fighter too. Or at least with self-defense. Yeah. Um, it's it's cool. Uh, and the reason why I put that little that little piece in there is – we get a flavor of what it would be like to uh, see a fight scene in this, in this book. Yeah. It's yeah. pretty good. It's very detailed, very quick and to the point and lets you, lets you know exactly what's going on. You can imagine it. It's almost like a movie playing in your head. It's like a fight scene four sec four, four pages into the book. Yeah. Well, it's not even, or yeah, it's like four pages. You're right. Three and a half, four pages. And I'm just like, all right, it's Garth Rogar all over again. Garth Rogar, R.I.P. <laughs> she finishes the fight swiftly and gives a respectful apology saying it's nothing personal then enters then enters a cool character as mother reacts to her daughter's defiance Esther Brooke mother said sharply Gwendolyn turned from the two downed men to find Esther Brooke captain of House Lancaster's armsmen entering the room Esther Brooke was a lean dangerous looking man his skin worn and leathery from years of the pitiless sunlight borne by aeronauts and the marines he wore a black suit and a coat tailored in the same style as the uniform of the fleet marine ha he had once been in. He bore the short, heavy copper-clad blade of a marine on one hip. The gauntlet on his left hand was made of worn and supple leather, though the copper cagework around his forearm and wrist was as polished and bright as Gwendolyn's newer model. So this it this kind of establishes we are in an in a steampunk old-timey feel. You know, like we're getting uh, descriptions of what they're wearing, getting a lot of coppers, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, yep. Coppers, leathers, wiring. Yep, that kind of stuff. Gwen politely greets Esterbrook, but feels obliged to inform him that she is indeed aiming at his head. <laughs> <laughs> to the, the captain of the Lancaster House Guard. Just Hey, good to see you, Esther Brooke, but I am aiming at your head. If you do not get out of my way, I'm going to blast a hole in it. I'm going to hurt you. Esther Brooke removes his shades to reveal feline pupils, compliments her on her reaction speed, and then asks where in the spire did she find someone to teach her the way. Cousin Benedict, naturally, she replied. Ha, Esther Brooke said. I kept smelling the perfume on him. Thought he had taken up with a woman. So now we get, uh, now we know that being able to use a gauntlet is difficult and uh, they call the teaching the way. <clears throat> it's called the way. 
We also get the sense that there's something different about Esterbrook with his feline eyes and keen sense of smell. So not only does he have the feline eyes that we see, but he says, I smelled the perfume on Cousin Benedict. So it's like, okay, this guy's like got more going on than the average human. Average Joe. That's probably why he's the top armsman, captain of the guard, that kind of stuff. We learn that Mother has expressly forbidden Gwen from hanging out with Cousin Benedict. Gwen tells Esterbrook to disarm, and to Mother's surprise, he does. He calmly points out to his lady, you know, Lady Lancaster, that she is carrying a weapon that she is fully capable of using. So it's all very polite and cool. It's just cool, you know? I thought this was a little too easy. A little too much? Well, no, when I was reading this, I thought this was a little too easy, and I'm like... This feels staged. Yeah, it does feel staged. That's, but that's that's what I thought. And I was like, would she really kill him? That's Friends what they ask the in the book. And then she blasts a statue into smithereens to prove her point. But it, but we see from this um, like third-person perspective uh, from Gwen's point of view that she is nervous. She wouldn't ever actually kill Esterbrook. But she does want to show that she is serious. So that's why she decides to blow the statue up. Good point. Um, Mother calls Gwen's bluff, and which is what we're talking about. And Gwen proceeds to shoot a statue into smithereens and then blows a hole in the wall and then walks out, presumably on her way to enlist with the Spirearch's guard. Then we get a wonderful twist at the end of the end of the scene where Esterbrook and the lady discuss that Gwen's departure to enlist was not only expected, but carefully engineered by the lady herself. Both are openly pleased with Gwen's competency, and Esterbrook reveals a little more of the history of his lady, Lancaster. So this is from the book. This is uh, Esterbrook talking to Lady Lancaster after they've discussed the fact that, yeah, she was kind of like Lady Lancaster was trying to push Gwen to like, hey, get out and spread your wings a little bit, but didn't actually want to reveal that to her. She had to do it of her own volition. So Esterbrook says this to the lady. Reminds me of someone else who enlisted or insisted on joining service, my lady. Esther Brooks said, let's see. And she goes, I was quite young and witful at the time, as you know very well. But when I left, it was nothing like that, saying, uh, referring to blowing up a statue and then blowing a hole in the wall. And he goes, indeed not, Esther Brooks said. As I recall, my lady, you reduced three doors to splinters on your way out, not one. I giggled when I read that. Lady Lancaster eyed the captain and sniffled. Honestly, Esterbrook, I'm all but certain that you're exaggerating. And half a dozen statues. They were tasteless replicas. And ten fo- a ten-foot section of a stone wall. Mother was standing in the door. How else was I to leave? Yes, my lady, Esterbrook said gravely. Thank you for correcting me. I see now there is no comparison to be made. It was awesome. It was It was so funny. Like, yep. It's like... Uh, it's cool to know that she wanted her daughter to leave. Like at first you think that this is just a, this lady is being a bitch to her daughter. And it's like the, the, the bad mother that doesn't understand her daughter. And it's going to be one of those stories, which is fine. You know, we talk about, you know, what, what is it called? Not stereotypes, but, um, cliches, cliches. If they're done right, they're good. But this is not that this is revealing that there's more going on there. There's more personality to it. If I wanted to write an opening scene like this with more personality, this is exactly how I would have done it. Have it be kind of like a stage thing, like a setup, 
Like, are you really willing to fight your way to join? Or are you just full of shit? I like this. And as soon as she left the room, I'm like, I knew it. I knew it. Because they could have stopped her. She wasn't going to kill them. So the prologue ends with some more world building and information. We learn that Esterbrook is part of a race called Warrior Born, which seems to be like a hybrid between human and feline. We also learn that Lady Lancaster, uh, she says, events are in motion in the spires, that at least four fleet aeronauts have reported sightings of an archangel, Spire Aurora has recalled her embassy from Spire Albion, which is where we're at right now. So now we got two spires. Spire Albion is where Havel Morning is, where we, where we are, and Spire um, Aurora has pulled out her embassy. So we're kind of thinking there's you know, national relation issues. And fleets have begun to skirmish. Most disturbing to her is that she says the crystals have started behaving strangely, and she doesn't know what that means. She says that she's been working with the crystals since, since she was a little girl. And they just are acting strange and she doesn't know what's going on. So we're, so what did you think of the prologue overall? I'm glad you explained what you just did because I didn't know what a warrior born was. I like, I think I missed it when I was reading it. Uh, I I think I just missed it. Um, And the crystals I remember, I liked the fun sequence between mother and uh, when and Esther book, I liked all of that. All of that was fine. It's a it's a fun opening. It's an exciting opening. It leaves a little mystery, makes you wonder what's going on. And if you can make any sort of investment in these characters, you're already saying to yourself, I want to know what else is going to happen. Hit me with it, Jim. I agree. Jimmy B, hit me with the dose of the steampunk fantasy. Hit me with more. Like, that's what you're thinking. If you can invest in these characters, if you can invest, if, if you like, if you like, um, our Lady Lancaster, you know, if you like, if you like Gwen, if you like her, and if you like her attitude and her character, and if you like her fighting for what she wants, you can make that investment. You can say, you know what, I'm going to read more. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, we got some wonderful world building right off the bat. Oh, yeah. Um, we get some promises and payoffs. You know, like what I mean by that is uh, we get a taste of what action's going to look like. Um, we get a taste of of some really cool like explosion etheric weapon thing you know with the crystal gauntlet um we got feline hybrid warrior born people uh so we're getting all these promises of like what could this mean and it's all wrapped up in this cool um like old style manners kind of world so it's just it just has a cool vibe to it I was watching some of Brandon Sanderson's writing class that he has on YouTube. Love those, dude. Was, love yeah, those. I do. I, I love them. I love them. Are you watching the newest was... one or the one from four years ago? I, I can't remember. Okay, that's fine. Some of them were recent. Some of them were recent. Yeah. But he was talking about promise and payoff. And I like that you mentioned that because just the little taste of combat that we saw here was enough to make me say, I'd like to see a full-on fight with people that actually want to kill her. Yeah. Or hurt her. Like, I want to see that. And I want to see more from these weapons. Like, this stuff's got my attention. I want more. Yeah. And it seems like the crystals are connected with everything. They, they mentioned yeah. it briefly with it being connected to the fleet, with it being connected to the Habble. So you're imagining maybe the Habbles yeah, yeah. run off of the crystals and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. And the, the whole crystal thing has got me like, what is Whoa. it? 
Yeah. How are these? Yeah. How are these relevant? Like, do they grow them? Where like do they come from? Do they mine them? Yeah. Yeah. Like, so it's got me saying, I got to know more about this. Like, so it's got me with a bunch of questions, which, you know, is good. Likeable characters. With, yep. Likeable characters. Interesting promises. Some tease payoffs. I call it a yep. tease payoff. Gives and, you a taste. Uh, got, little taste. Give me, and it's got me wanting more. So. But we're not going to really get more yet because we need to introduce a new main character starting with chapter one. Hell yeah. Elbian Merchant Ship Predator. Summary. Captain Grimm flicked the telescopic, uh, the telescopic up off the right eyepiece of his heavy goggles. The Auroran airship was a faint blot against the thick clouds below. Auroran airship. So I, I know I'm stopping all the time here. But we are on the Albion merchant ship Predator, this Spire Albion merchant ship. We just talked to Lady Lancaster about how she's saying Aurora is taking her embassy out of Spire Albion. And now we have Captain Grimm on an Albion ship looking down at an Auroran airship. Okay. While Predator was hidden high above the aerosphere by the hidden by the glare of the sun. A storm was rolling, roiling through the mesosphere, the layer of heavy cloud and mist that lay beneath them. But there was still time to reach the enemy vessel before the storm began to interfere with the ship's systems. Grimm nodded once decisively. We'll go in on the currents. General quarters, run out the guns, spread the web, top, bottom, and flanks. Full power to the shroud, set a course for the Auroran vessel. It's like a movie, the way it starts. It's just... You can just see this. He's he's standing there, takes his goggles, flicks them up, and then starts barking orders. It starts with action. It starts with some intensity. With some, it's already got you saying, okay. First of all, what's this a roaring ship? Yeah. Are these guys good guys? Are these guys bad guys? You know, we really don't know yet. I mean, you know, they could be either or. And I, I've got myself already interested. I already told you. I don't really care necessarily about steampunk. I don't really care necessarily. This about is your naval. first steampunk punk book. This Jack. is my first steampunk experience ever with literature. So I already told you, I don't really, I'm not, I don't really get high on that stuff like some people do, but I'm reading this and I find myself going, yeah. Yeah, I do. I like, I'm getting, yeah, dude, I'm getting into this. Like, well, the this imagery is... is so cool. We're on a ship called the Predator and it's, hovering above a mile above this auroran ship which is just a blot above this huge storm that's being built and they're hiding themselves from the viewpoint of that other ship by being in front of the sun so they can't really see them yeah you know i wonder if jim i wonder if jimmy b is a magic the gathering player because there is a flagship in magic the gathering called the predator oh is there the predator flagship yeah and then of course the one ship from the heroes is called the weatherlight so, like, I, I wonder if, you know, he gets any of his names from Magic the Gathering because uh, as soon as I read Albion Merchant Ship Predator, I thought to myself, oh, like Magic the Gathering, except Predator and Magic the Gathering is uh, Commander Ilvec's ship. It very well knowledge. could be because um, I was just watching a, a, a Google talk with Jim Butcher from like five years ago when the book was released. And he yeah. talks about uh, when he was doing his beta reads. What he does is he'll come up with a world that he likes and then he'll make a D&D campaign with it and then play. And then he's kind of sees how it goes and sees if he likes it because all the players will never go um, in the direction that you script. So he has to kind of make 
make it up as he goes along. And then he writes down a basic story for that. And he sent out like four stories. One was sci-fi. One was this. One was fantasy, blah, blah, blah. And this was the one that got the most um, response from the beta readers. So then he decided to write this because of that. And Gwen, the character, is from one of the players from his D&D group that was playing a character. Cool. Anyway. So we jump right into the action with a new character, Captain Grimm, who is scoping out a target from a mile above. Grimm is assisted by commanding officer Creedy, who tries to maintain a high level of etiquette to which he has difficulty due to the crotchety yet very able crew. Full power to the shroud, if you please, Mr. Journeyman. Full power to the shroud, aye. And tell the captain to blow the hell out of them before they can touch our shroud. The storm's too close. He, He times the approach wrong and we'll be naked. Maintain discipline, Mr. Journeyman, Creedy said severely. Maintenance is what I do, idiot, snapped the engineer. Don't tell me my business, you jumped up wallypog. Let it I go. I love this. <laughs> yeah. yep. I love this exchange. It's priceless, dude. And it's, listen, character to character dialogue. If you're going to have it and it's going to be heavy like this, because this is a very dialogue heavy chapter, is so important that it's engaging and fun. It doesn't have to be funny. But when I mean fun, I mean, like, for you, the reader, are you enjoying it? Like, is it keeping you going? Even if it's sad or dangerous or bad, is it fun? Does it keep you wanting more? This conversation is awesome. Well, I like how they're they're calling everybody Mr. And, you know, XO Creedy, uh, commanding officer Creedy, is saying, hey, That's maintain what I meant, discipline. Yeah. And the maintenance guy's like, maintenance, maintaining is what I do, you idiot. You know, like you can, jumped up Wally Pog. You jumped up Wally Pog. You get the idea that um, this crew is kind of buddies. They're they're a little rough around the edges, but they are very good at what they do. And oh, yeah. it's revealed uh, as we go through, and I'll probably read it at a point. But that they're all ex fleet dudes. They're all retired, but they're all signed up to be with Captain Grimm because hey, yeah. you need to get a buck still after you're retired. You know. So after he's called a jumped up Wally Pog, in comes Grimm to help him out. He goes, let it go, XO, Grimm said very quietly to Creedy. He was smiling, if only barely, at the journeyman's response. So um, I get a very master and commander vibe from this. Do you remember that movie? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. And um, this scene in particular with Captain Grimm and his crew, I really liked how we got XO Creedy, who, although very competent, has difficulty cultivating respect from the crew. And we have Grimm, who seems to be acting as a mentor to Creedy. So even though um, XL Creedy is doing his job, he's supposed to be the guy that doles out the orders of what the captain wants. You know, there's a chain of command here. When there's when there's backlash, Creedy gets pissed because he's like, dude, I'm better than this shit, you know. But uh, Grimm, the captain, kind of mentors him a bit and is like, hey, man, let it go. These guys know what to do. If they're going to say shit, they're going to say shit. Don't let them see you get fucked in the pants. You know what I mean? He's teaching it, it him kind of how to be a, a good captain, commander. Basically, you know, it's it's hard to do that, though, right? Like when you try to tell an employee to do something or, a, or somebody you work with to do something and they're supposed to listen to and respect you and they maybe give you some lip. It's like, dude, don't argue with me. Just do what I told you to do and shut the fuck up. Like, yeah. that's what you want to say. But you can't say that. It's tough. The Predator and her crew are preparing to surprise attack the Auroran ship from one of the rival spires. Um, 
Exocrity is visibly nervous at what will be his first battle aboard the Predator, and falls back into the lessons he learned from being in a fleet warship, which doesn't match up to the private class of vessel of the Predator. Grimm gives Creedy a much-needed pep talk, and we learn the reason why Creedy is on the Predator in the first place. It is because of a disciplinary action from the fleet. And he basically yeah. says to him, like, hey, relax. The reason why the fleet disciplines people so harshly like this is because they don't want you to make a mistake when you return. Um, so don't worry. Very soon you'll be back on your fleet vessel with all the super strong hull structure and all that stuff. But if they really wanted you out, they would have just decommissioned you. You know, they would have just sent you. They wouldn't have given you a second chance. So they're like, he's like, learn what you can while you're here, basically. You know? So the plan is to dive down onto the position of the Auroran ship, disable it, and jet off after sending a buoy for another bigger Elbian ship captained by the popular Commodore Hamilton Rook. (laughs) And um, this is from uh, Grimm. Buck up, Exo. Even if we don't bring a, a prize ship back with us, the bounty from laming her and leaving her for Rook will earn us a tidy bonus. A hundred crowns a head at least. Creedy grimaces. While Rook rakes in hundreds of thousands of crowns in prize money and buys his house a few more counselors. So, the currency here is called crowns, which is pretty cool. I like the currency being called crowns. It further yeah, establishes. It further establishes we're in a a fantasy world, you know, and we get a little taste of how small Captain Grimm is. But even so, we get a feeling that like how small time he is, you know, like he's not a big fleet captain that's famous and popular, um, but he is effective at what he does. So we get the feeling that he loves his ship and doesn't care about getting pers- gaining personal influence, but has a fierce loyalty to Albion and protecting the Spire at great personal risk. He doesn't have to be the one to score the finishing blow at this point. He knows that if he lames up this ship, this Cortez-class ship, he knows if he lames up this ship, it'll be good for Rook. They'll make some extra money. Rook will make money. and It'll be good for everybody all around. He's thinking about the whole team. Meanwhile, Creedy is still being short-sighted in a sense. Yeah. Kettle, the sailor at the controls, suggests that they (laughs) alter their dive to be steeper, which would allow gravity to drop them faster than a normal dive and give them the opportunity to hide in the storm clouds if needed. Grimm's, Grimm goes for it and orders the gun crew to adjust their angles and gave the um, other men or gave the order for the other men to rig up the sails, which is a very old school system compared to the steam-powered screw-like turbines yeah. most airships use to move, but has the advantage of being nearly silent. So this is cool. You get a feeling like the Predator is kind of a rinky-dink ship almost where it's got sails. And that's such an old school thing that most people are like scoff at it nowadays because of all the steam engine stuff. But it's it's cool. I liked it. But then we find out why it has sails and why it still uses them too. It It was basically, I thought the advantage was just that the fact that it's nearly silent. You know, That's, like that you can yeah. catch a wind. Um, That's what I was looking for. Yeah. Yeah. The crew ready, everybody fastened in harnesses. They were ready to dive or ready for the dive. And we get a great first description of Captain Grimm. So at this point, we just get his personality through dialogue. But now we actually get a description of who we're looking at. Once fastened in, Grimm paused to straighten his uniform. As the captain of an Elbian merchant ship, 
He was not strictly required to wear one, but the crew had commissioned one for him after their first highly successful run as privateers. It was identical to the uniform of the fleet, but instead of his leathers being colored deep blue with gold trim, they were jet black trimmed, with, trimmed in blood red. The two broad stripes of an airship captain adorned on the end of each sleeve of his long coat. The coat's skull-shaped silver buttons had seemed a bit excessive to him, but he had to admit they did lend to the outfit a credibility of piratical air. Last of all, as always, he clinched or he cinched tight the strap of his peaked cap, securing it tight to his head. Aeronauts considered it very bad luck for a captain to lose his cap when his ship dived into battle, and Grimm had seen too many odd things in his day to be entirely liberated from the superstition himself. Grimm is a badass. Oh yeah, definitely. I really like this scene because like you said, this is our first real description, and it says, yeah, he's got this image of confident, strong, leader but he's still got some superstitions and don't let any of them old bucks fool you some of the older guys they've all got superstitions they're all afraid of something and they all have that little voice in the back of their head that says can you really do this yep but like but like we see grim actually says they can't see you sweat yep you have to have the image even if things are going to hell and the ship's getting shredded you maintain that you're gonna win and that confidence Sometimes that'll carry you through the worst of times. Yeah. Uh, a good leader, you know, I had heard one time and I really liked it. Basically, it doesn't matter what decision you make as long as you make a decision and stick to it. Got it him. makes you Got look him. like you know what you're doing, even if in your head you're going crazy. Um, but something yeah. I wanted to point out about the description, um, it, he's, it said that as a Albion merchant ship, he's not strictly required to wear a uniform. But the crew had commissioned one for him after their first successful run as privateers. And you just imagine this backstory of, hey, Grimm is a captain of the Predator. He needs some extra guys. He calls in all the retired vets and says, hey, you want to fly with me? I got a quick job over here. And it was highly successful. And they saw how he commanded. And he's, you know, he's Grimm. He's a good captain. He doesn't need anything flashy. He doesn't care about that kind of stuff. But the crew was like, you're a good damn captain. We're ma we're getting you a uniform, and we're going to say F you to the fleet and get you a black uniform with skulls on it. You know what I mean? It was just cool. Like, yeah. you imagine they all like him, you know? I think it shows I think it shows the respect the crew has for him. Mm -hmm. I When I read this part, dude, here's the thing, man. This whole chapter, from start with them bickering and arguing to the middle with him kind of telling Creedy, hey, just chill out. Right. This is what's going to happen, and this is what we have to do to ensure everything goes good. And then he's, then he's, it's all this other stuff's going on. And then we come to this part where you find out they commissioned this uniform for him. It all goes in line with this kind of feeling of this is the old guys' club. This is like yep. this is this is the sailors' club, and it, I mean, it kind of is. Yeah, absolutely. Like you, you get a sense that these guys are all pretty close. In the tense moments leading up to the daring dive, the narrator describe, describes Grimm's role as a captain, it being important to allow his crew to feel fear, but not to show it himself. Just like you were saying, Justin. His crew was made up of old retired veterans of the fleet, and Grimm would match them up against any of the best currently operating in the fleet, but they still felt fear. With Grimm standing there, visible to all, doing nothing, 
and it showed the crew that he trusted them to do their jobs, and they trusted Grimm to make the right calls. Exo Creedy readies himself by grabbing onto the railing so hard that his knuckles turn white, and Grimm again corrects him subtly. Creedy attempted to emulate his captain, with limited success. He clutched on one rail so tightly that his knuckles had gone white, and his breath was coming too hard through his flared nostrils. XO, Grimm said quietly, smiling, perhaps your gloves. So I really appreciate the little moments like this sprinkled in. It's obvious that Creedy doesn't fit in, and it's also obvious he doesn't really want to be there, but he is trying. And Grimm sees this, and when he corrects Creedy, it's between them, and he doesn't make, he doesn't belittle him. In fact, he encourages him that he's on the right track, just needs to make some tweaks. I really respect that. So what he's saying is like, I see what you're trying to do, Creedy. You're trying to look cool, but you're coming off as a little <laughs> weak here. Out of the bitch. Yeah. Put on your gloves. And it, and it kind of like is saying, hey, I see you, dude. Why don't you get yourself ready? And it's not, and he's not blasting it in front of the crew to make them yeah. have second Ob- thoughts. About obvious it. to the fact that he's nervous. Yeah. 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 I'll tell you some of the best advice I ever got. I got it from my uncle. He's 79 years old. He's been in business all of his life. He's never known anything else other than retail. He told me, and he's made this mistake before. He told me, you never call somebody out in front of the rest of the employees. Theft is different. Crimes are different. But you never call somebody out for a mistake in front of the other employees because it's embarrassing. It's belittling. And it's hard to build somebody's confidence when you're belittling them and when you're being cruel to them. There's no reason for that. Tell them what they did wrong. Show them what they did wrong between you and help them learn where they can do better. And that's something that as a, as a boss that I try to do myself. So when I saw him doing that, I was like, I like this. I can identify with this. Then there's a bit of explanation of why Grimm doesn't blame Creedy for feeling so nervous. This would be his first battle on Predator, after all, and she is made mainly of wood and some brass copper and copper sheeting. But mm-hmm. if an enemy fire, if the enemy fire penetrated her shroud, which is like the, they don't, they'll go into it more in chapter two, but the shroud is like its defensive, like uh, shield kind of thing. It's like made of etheric yeah, yeah. energy and stuff like that. If the fire were to penetrate her shroud, then they could get a lucky shot that would destroy her core crystal, unleashing several mile-wide blast. So we get the crystal again. Oh, this ship is running on a crystal that if shot at, it will blow up into smithereens. It kind of reminded me of like uh, nuclear submarines. Like how dangerous must that be? If a torpedo hits the nuclear engine, that's probably a pretty big explosion. Let me make a prediction now. Don't tell me if I'm right because I don't want to know. I have a prediction that at some point in this book, one of those crystals on one of those ships will get hit or it's how they will destroy a far superior ship and we will get to have that explosion described for us. Maybe. That is my prediction because I have only read through the first chapter. That's. Uh, I'm glad that you made that prediction. We'll have to keep track as we read. You know? Mm-hmm. That's my prediction. Just like I did with uh, Sword of Bedwear when we started reading that, I made some predictions. There's my prediction for this book. That's how they're going to defeat a ship at some point is it's going to get crystalled. Well, I like that they put it in there because they're continually letting you know that, yes, Grimm's competent. Yes, his crew is excellent ace vets. However, the Predator is a merchant ship. Like, yeah, they got cannons. 
they can do they can they're fast and they're agile yeah. and they got the old tech that the old guys are used to but yeah. going up against a legit fleet ship from another spire is potentially dangerous but this is the predator a cortez clash cortez clash cortez clash ship and, but they they keep going back and forth they, they keep on saying like you know it is weak it is um a little bit more fragile than even Creedy knows. But this is the Predator. But this is the Predator. It's like, it is yeah. made of wood and maybe some brass sheeting and stuff like that. Yeah. It's the Predator. But this is the Predator. So, we gotta yeah, see like, what that means. Jimmy Jimmy B is uh, Jimmy B's Jim trying Butch. to tell us something here. Mr. Butch. Alright, so then it was Jimmy, time. Jimmy, are you trying to tell us something? We're just wondering. Then it was time. Grim called uh, for the crew to ready themselves and we get this banger of a chapter cliffhanger oh god was it good the ship's bell began to rang in rapid staccato a last warning to the ship's company to secure safety lines before predator went into battle grim felt a wolfish grin touch his mouth he reached up to tighten the band of his peaked cap in preparation for the dive and nodded slightly to one side mr kettle he said you may begin your dive it's so good it was legit bro it's I like, it. I, I want to read the next chapter now, you know? Yeah, it had me. It had me going, dude. I uh, I enjoyed this. Again, I told you, I'm not big into the naval stuff. I'm not big into the steampunk stuff. And I, I find myself reading this whole section here going, yep, I like these guys. Yeah, it's cool. Yep, I like Grim. Creedy's kind of cool, too. I feel like I would be Creedy, probably. I like Creedy. Especially, I like yeah, Kettle. I like cool. Mr. Kettle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kettle's cool. Kettle's cool. I, I like their back and forth banter with uh, the engineer. Yep. That was good. That reminds me of some of my friends. Like, I, I, I feel like there was, there's good character development here. There's good, there's world building again with the crystals and with more questions about that. And I, I like everything about it. Like, I, I'm in, at this point, dude, I'm all in, bro. Yeah, we've got a prologue uh, introducing three great characters. You know, Lady Lancaster of House Lancaster, presumably very important. Uh, mm-hmm. The um, Mister Esterbrook, the the guard captain of House Lancaster, and then we A got you know we got Gwen, who is the yeah he is Warrior Born, and then we got Gwen, which is going to be probably our main character here in the prologue. That could have been enough, you know. It could mm-hmm. be about Gwen. <clears throat> But no, chapter one, we start out with another main character and several great supporting characters. You know, we got uh-huh. Grimm, obviously going to be the main character. Um, but all the supporting characters around him are excellent. It, it really feels fleshed out, you know? Yeah. So I really uh-huh. liked it. I really like this start. It gets you interested in wanting to read um, further. And the next chapter is going to be the air battle between the Auroran fleet ship and the Albion merchant ship to see how that goes down. You know, I don't care what anybody says. And I know there's like rules for writing with your first couple sentences has to be attention getting or this or that or the other thing. I think your first between three and five chapters need to be very strong. I'm not saying that they shouldn't all be good, but your first three to five chapters of your book need to set a pace, especially if you have a longer book, which this is. It is a big boy. It's a thick boy. It needs to set a pace and it needs to set the stage and say, look, finish this book. This is what you're in for. 
I'm making you some promises. You're going to enjoy it if X, Y, Z, A, B, and C. And if those first three to five chapters are strong, most readers, even typically non-readers, which I am, spoiler alert, same, will con- will continue with your book. Yeah, it's a beefy boy. And it's surprising yeah. because you would think a book that big, you know, when I looked at it at Audible, the first time I listened to it, and it says like, I don't know what it says, like 20 hours or whatever. Yeah, You're like, okay, yeah. it's going to be a long one. It's probably going to start off slow. No, it's boom, 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 you know, very quick. And I wonder yeah. if it's going to be able to maintain that pace. doesn't really matter. It's a, a good prologue and a strong first chapter, I would say. The prologue's yeah. good, establishing the world a little bit. You get uh, cool character interactions. You get the feeling that it's um, kind of a, like a funny, or not a funny, but like a lighthearted, yet also can be serious uh, world. Yeah. But then yeah. the first chapter is solid. It's strong. It, it uh, gets you excited. Very much so. So that's going to do it for the prologue in the first chapter. Before we go, though... Justin, being an indie author himself, you've been working on a project lately, haven't you? I have been. So the project is called Hidden, A Trapper's Tale. And uh, what I have for you tonight, if you'd allow me to share it, if we have time, Absolutely. is is part, excerpt. Of, part of a chapter called The Wicked Tale of Danielle from House of Danielle. If that's okay with you. Let's do it. All right. So I'm going to give you the I'm going to give you the no cuts, no censors all the way through what I have. The sky was a deep crimson. All along the outskirts of Hylam, farmers and field hands worked with haste to finish a final job and bring in the rest of the livestock before night settled over the village. One worker, Danielle, known to the village as Little Dan, was carrying a bundle of farm tools when he noticed something nefarious on the eastern edge of town. Hylam was built directly in the center of the ash forest, so aptly named for its infertile soil charred trees, and petrified state. Ever since the villagers killed the priestess that watched over the forest years ago, nothing has grown there, and every full moon, a demonic beast emerges and hunts for a meal. This is the curse that the villagers of Hylam brought upon themselves. This is the curse of avarice. The dark, shadowy being moved swiftly from the tree line and shambled its way easily, traversing the hilly fields of Hylam, and heading straight for a young villager gathering water at the town's well. Dan moved as quickly as his stubby legs would allow him to, dropping all but a short lash whip on his way to the well. While others made for their homes and the town barracks, Danielle found himself heading opposite, directly towards certain doom. Get inside, little Dan shouted, a crack of fear in his voice. He motioned to the young girl working at the well, drop that bucket and run. But it was too late. The shadowy creature was already upon her. In an instant, the young girl was swept up into the shadowy mass and hauled away, crying and struggling to the ash forest. Dan now stood alone at the well, staring at the only trace the creature ever left behind, a monstrous human footprint. Once again, the curse had claimed another victim. The Inn At the inn, the mood was somber, for the steel and stallion to have less than twenty cheerful drinking patrons at any time was almost unheard of it was an event one could only see on a night like this dan walked in through the open pair of heavy iron trimmed oak doors tensions while normally high during a full moon 
had fallen drastically, since once a creature claimed a victim, it wouldn't return on the same moon. On this night, there were only three patrons at the stallion. The quaint log cabin inn smelled of aged black spruce, and its walls were lined with animal mounts and skulls from local trappers and travelers. In the far back corner, a fire crackled in the fireplace, and two of the three patrons chatted quietly with their backs to Dan. The other, a middle-aged man dressed in foreign garb, sat drinking alone at the bar. While normally a man wearing the furs of a recent kill or a catch would seem a regular occurrence to Dan, this man's furs perturbed him slightly. The man wore the caped-out skin of an adult sage buck, an animal that hadn't been seen in the ash forest for near seven years. Dan approached and sat next to him. The young farmhand made note of the man's cut and calloused hands, his graying hair, and some scars across that man's face. Beer, Dan said, sadness in his voice. Make it a hard one from the cellar. The bartender, an old man shorter than Dan, stepped up on a stool and poked his dwarven head over the bar. He had a long golden beard, but a completely shaven head. His beard was braided and with multicolored stone beads marking years of growth at inch-long intervals. There were several. He had a pointy nose and wore tan slacks with a cut-off buckskin vest. Ah, don't beat you up. Don't beat yourself up, lad. He spoke, grabbing a clean mug from under the bar. There was a trap door on the floor he opened and climbed through. A few moments later, he returned with a frothy mug of ale. Dan smiled and noticed as the old man lifted his head from his own ale and returned the smile. So you can do more than just drink, Dan commented. You smile too. The old man lowered his head and drank again. Knees wart and honeysuckle, he spoke in a hollow tone. That's what I smell. He looked to Dan. And you? He just shrugged and sniffed his ale. It was strong. A mule kick in the nose for certain. Something soft and earthy, Dan mused, like rishi caps. So simple and tasty. I used to feed them to stray dogs in the town all the time. I still do sometimes. The old man grunted and turned towards Dan. He extended his hand. Mason of House Black, he spoke firm. How would you like to do some business together? Dan smiled a half. A half smile. Well, Mason, if your dress is anything to go by, I'm guessing you're not from around here. With his hand still extended, Black nodded in affirmation. I'm from distant lands, he grunted. He made on contact with Dan for the first time. Much like yourself, lad. Don't worry, it's only another page. Little Dan followed a short distance. Oh, at the outskirts of town. Little Dan followed a short distance behind Black as the two approached the ominous edge of Ash Forest together. He noticed Mason following and observing the gargantuan footprints. All the while, they came closer and closer to the mysterious wood. Dan, on the other hand, noticed a few things in the torch and moonlight mix that seemed to circle them softly, quietly. Near the forest edge, Danielle saw patches of partially eaten clovers and angel blossoms. Now in his experience, Dan had come to know these as a popular forage for eastern cottontail rabbits and northern red squirrel. The thing that now concerned him was the simple fact that hunters and trappers hadn't taken either of those from this wood or the nearby moor in almost five years. Sir Black, he spoke softly, sharing his torchlight to the clovers. Look. Mason looked back and took note of it. He let out a shallow grunt and continued on. Dan, on the other hand, did not. He retrieved his pack and removed a thick tome. He flipped a few pages and stopped, 
at a page with 15 pressings, dried samples, of clover. Some were whole, others broken, ripped, or not. He picked some of these half-eaten clovers from the patch and added it to the book. He retrieved a lead stick and made a few notes by it. He turned some pages and found one filled with angel blossoms. He plucked a few, added them, took notes, and closed the book with a slap. Hey, Mason whispered sharply. The name of the game is keep up, not catch up. He turned and continued on. Dan nodded and stood, but before he did, he grabbed a four-leaf clover from the patch. A lucky one, he whispered. I hope. Awesome. And that's, and that's what I got for you this week. Wonderful. That's really great. So we'll throw this in the garbage. We'll start over next week. <laughs> Put it in the filing cabinet. Recycling. Uh, Jellyan, could you recycle this, please? Thank you, love. Well, I really, I really enjoyed that. That's a nice, um, that that's a nice opener or, or chapter excerpt or something. And and what I hope is that as you continue to write this, that you'll continue to share it at the end of our little podcast here. It's a little treat for the listeners and for me, of course. I'm- I'm always happy to share. Um, I enjoy I enjoy writing fantasy. I enjoy writing, obviously, fantastical settings, far out settings, mystical settings, things like that. I, it's something I've always enjoyed, and I enjoy it more now as I get into my adult years, for certain. Uh, Dan, you know, I want to I want to thank you for having me here tonight, man. This uh, our first chapters with the Aeronauts Windless from the Cinder Spires with Jim Butcher. Loved my experience with it. Uh, I'm looking forward to reading more of it and I'm looking forward to coming back for more podcast. Absolutely. Uh, so let's, uh, set up for, we'll try to do two chapters. The next chapter is kind of beefy. I think it's like 30 pages or something like that. So it is kind of a long one. It's a, it's a big one. It'll take you like a normal reader could probably read it in like an, like an hour, maybe 45 minutes for me. For me, it'll take double that at least. But, um, if you can get through the next chapter, maybe two, uh, we'll be able to cruise through that and continue going because there are a lot of chapters in this book. Yes. Did you see how many? There's, There's 69. Oh. Nice. 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 Anyway, nice, that's going to do nice, it for nice. uh, this week's episode of Random Book Club Podcast. Justin, if the people want to find you or your work that you're working on, where can they find you? Sure. So you guys can check out the Trinity of Heroes or A Grim Ultimatum. That's books one and two of the I Will Protect You saga. They are self-published on Amazon, both Kindle and paperback. Uh, we also have a few other series. I'm working on a light novel style story in the kind of anime vibe, which is called Tokyo Lightning. You guys can check that out if you want. And if you want to follow us on Wattpad to read some of the crazy stuff I slash we have written, feel free to follow us, Jared and Justin Authors. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining me, man. And we will catch you guys on the next one. See ya.